Two Guys Five Movies. This one of your co-host Chris. This is Frank. And this week we are once again joined by our friend Jason Heaster, who will be here to discuss the best of Bill Murray. And this is the first time we've done an actor on the Third Man series. So we're going to be focusing a little bit more. We'll be talking about his movies, but we'll also be focusing a little bit more on the performances in those movies. So to start off talking about Bill Murray, I've been doing a lot of thinking about him this week, and I'm going to propose a kind of errors of Bill Murray to everybody, and then you can tell me how off you think I am. Errors or errors? Errors. Errors. No, I think it's error. I, it is. You, I was you saying know, it so you would understand. You know, Easter, I had a speech impediment as a child, and this is triggering me right now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's why I brought it up. All right. So, I kind of see his career as somewhat ensemble comedy early on. So, I'm thinking Caddyshack, Ghostbusters, even Stripes to some degree, which relies on supporting characters. And then moving into more starring role comedy, vehicle comedy, where he's the star, which we're going to talk about a couple of those movies in depth tonight. And that's kind of like into the late 80s, early 90s. And then he goes into kind of serial comic mode, mostly with the Wes Anderson stuff. And then finally we get more kind of dramatic vehicles that kind of blend in with those. Lost in Translation, Broken Flowers. Garfield. I think that's one movie we might not discuss. <laughs> Operation Dumbo Drop. <laughs> so, does any have anybody have anything they want to add to that or contest in terms of the kind of errors as we go through them? No, not really. I I think in the what you call the ensemble comedy phase uh-huh. is more of like the like outsider madcap i'm like manic comic phase where like so to me he moves from that which is more i don't like wacky comedy into being more of what i consider to be emblematic of like the 80s like middle-aged man performances so like ghostbusters um groundhog day uh like that era Maybe starting with, um, what's he in Tootsie, right? So, like, Tootsie and then on. Where it's more... Like, I think Peter Venkman is what, like, every middle-aged dude in the 80s wanted to be. Which is, like, charming and kind of witty. But also, it's, like, childlike. A bit aloof. Yeah. Like, unable to commit, but still able to have a good time. Like, he attracts people, but he doesn't ever have to settle down. Type thing. And then... Well, generationally, I, I suppose he bridges the two eras of baby boomers as kind of rebelliousness leading into this self-interested mode where he retains the wit and charm of like that lifestyle early on but is now this kind of still trying to be rebellious but work a little bit inside the system and those kind of things i mean i think that's why they pit him and ghostbusters against the mayor's aide or whatever yeah. Peck. In some ways, Peck. Um, so, who has no dick? <laughs> uh, yes, who has no dick? Yeah. Um, but it's like you're talking about his mania. It's like there's also the, the other aspect of those characters, which is he's not just manic, but he's also really self-interested and sarcastic and 
he's just a kind of angry dude in some yeah. ways. And I think that you see that take on different forms throughout his career, probably. Sure. Like those different types of things. The, the mania gets played down more and that kind of internal struggle. I mean, there's definitely a large over. large sense of like that understated anger in like Rushmore, for instance. You know, his performance there where he's obviously just kind of like dead inside until he meets, you know, the Max character. And then when he gets pushed to it, he's just as like... I don't know, mean-spirited and manipulative and... But always charming. you find him charming in Rushmore? Uh, I I mean, he gets the girl. He has to be at least somewhat charming. He kind of gets the girl, though, because a 15-year-old, <laughs> like, arranges it. Yeah, but that wasn't his main competition. She was, he, she was dating a doctor. Right. So, I mean... But it's also Luke Perry, I don't know. No, or no, not, not Luke Perry, <laughs> Luke Wilson. Wow. Sorry. Luke Wilson. Who, by the way, has anybody seen him recently? No. Colgate commercials. Yeah? Yeah. I saw a Facebook ad for his uh, a, a shirt company or a sportswear company that he's like co-owner of and modeling for. A winning smile and a nice polo. That's yeah. What, that's, a... that's what Luke Wilson's got. <laughs> I did a double take because I, I, I thought it was him and I was like, Jesus. Okay, so let's start then in that manic phase a little bit. Well, also, I, I, yeah, let's yeah. go back a little bit because, uh, you know, he, like many other actors of these eras, mm-hmm. came out of Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. So you could compare and contrast him to, uh, you know, Steve Martin. I mean, he was in or, a decent number of movies before Saturday Night Live, though, right? Example, but nah, not really. No. What, yeah. When is that, what's Saturday Night Live's first year? 74? Oh, really? First, it's that... First year? 74, 75, I think? That's probably right. Yeah. I thought it was much later than that. <clears throat> But, uh, no, I guess know. that's true. So what, like meatballs maybe? Yeah, and then I think where the Buffalo Room is seventy six maybe. Yeah. So yeah, it's like he's he's on SNL a couple of years before he starts getting roles. Um, yeah. So like Chevy Chase. I mean, Chevy Chase would be a good example. Or um, Chevy Chase is the other guy that I equate to like the middle class middle aged white man in the eighties. But somehow like he, was, he was never as likable as Bill right. Murray. Right. I was going to say without the charm. Yeah. Right. Of Bill Murray. Aside from that um, Paul Simon video, where I, I kind of find him like really obnoxious, the mm-hmm. "Call Me Al" or whatever that song's called. Yeah. Chevy Chase is. Um, we'll we'll never do an episode on Chevy Chase ever, <laughs> unless we want to talk about Funny Farm someday. <laughs> I don't want to talk about Funny Farm. Okay, so in that era, I want to just get quick reactions on some of these movies. Well, let's start with you. Where the Buffalo Roam? Right. What do you think about? His performance there as Hunter Thompson. So I saw Where the Buffalo Room before I really... I knew who Hunter Thompson was from like one article in some Rolling Stone anthology that I had read. Mm-hmm. Um, but nothing else beyond it. Um, and I, I really enjoyed Where the Buffalo Room. Like I think that... Um, I think it's a pretty pretty well done movie. Like it's got some really good moments and he, he does a good job in it. But it's funny that like... It's overshadowed so much by Johnny Depp's Hunter S. Thompson and Fear and Loathing, almost to the point of making it, like, irrelevant as a performance of Hunter S. Thompson. Because he definitely, like, he captures some of the same things that Depp does, but Depp does it to such, like, a... He's like a character. Right. Like, there's so... It's almost like an alien performance by Depp, whereas Bill Murray's performance is very much grounded in reality. He's just kind of, like... A little more, I don't know, like bombastic or well spoken or whatever than the people around him. Um, 
but it's a fine movie. Like it, it's something that I think that a lot of people have kind of forgotten about, and you know, probably never even gets discussed. Well, I think that Gilliam does such a fantastic job of bringing that world of Hunter Thompson oh, sure. here, loathing to life, that I think it makes a lot of sense that it just has been forgotten because it's really the inferior movie. Right. And I mean, he's that Murray's gotten that performance has been forgotten as well. Gilliam's making like a fantasy movie in the the real world, basically, in Fear and Loathing, whereas where the Buffalo Roam is just a, just kind of a movie. Um, but it's fine, and it's it's something that, like, it's a good performance by Murray, and, like, before he sort of moves into that, like, Caddyshack, Stripes, like, Saturday Night Live era of what I consider, like, the manic Bill Murray comedy. Your ensemble phase. Teacher, did you rewatch Stripes at all? I did not. I I don't have to though because okay. I've seen it dozens of times. I yeah. think. I mean, uh-huh. it's it is one of my favorite uh, Bill Murray movies of all time, and I find myself uh, frequently quoting it. Mm. Um, quote Stripes for me. I want to. I want to <laughs> quote. <laughs> you can't park. You can't park that here. We're not parking it. We're abandoning it. That's a good quote. Yeah, I mean, that's good, yeah, yeah. That's one of my favorite. One of my favorite <laughs> scenes. <laughs> Uh, what he's listening to, what he's breaking up with his girlfriend at the beginning. There's so much. There's so much stuff. I mean, he's like, uh, you know, she's like, and you're always listening to Tito Puente, and he goes, <laughs> Tito Puente is going to die, and you're going to say, I've been listening to him forever, <laughs> as if it was a real threat for right. some reason. <laughs> uh, and you know, I, there's just there's just a lot of great stuff in Stripes. I don't know? think I've seen Stripes, but once maybe. Oh, really? And really? it's probably been. <laughs> Over 30 years since... Yeah, over 30 years, I think, since I've seen Stripes. This is one of those movies in the 80s that seemed to always be playing on something like Cinemax. Mm. So I always used to see Stripes, like at least parts of it, all the time. Right, I feel like that was Private Benjamin for me. Mm. And I feel just the opposite. Like I, Private Benjamin is like the movie that I've only seen once. Yeah. So... I don't... Um, I've seen Private Benjamin a lot of times. That's weird. I know. Yeah, that's really yeah, strange. I was going to say unfortunate. <laughs> right, I don't like Private Benjamin, I yeah. don't think, but like I just it was just one of those things where it was always on. Uh, yeah, I was talking to my mother last night and I think this goes to your point about kind of baby boomers in some ways is that my mother can't really talk for very long about an actor's filmography or anything like that. She's not she's seen a lot of movies but she's not extremely knowledgeable about film or anything like that. But we had a half-hour conversation about Bill Murray last night because she knows Bill Murray's filmography that well. And I do think there is something about Murray and his characters that really appeals to that generation a lot. But I also think that there's a big cross. It's one of the few areas, I think, of like real crossover between Boomers and Xers. Is we, a lot of Xers grew up with Bill Murray. Sure. And kind of idolized, I think, a lot of, like, his early characters, like Peter Venkman, have become, like, icons, where, um, and I think, particularly Ghostbusters is a movie, right. I think, sure. is, like, a movie that has a lot of crossover, generational crossover there. <clears throat> so I found it interesting that my mother, and my mother's favorite movie is Stripes, mm. like, of, of, out of all of his movies, so that's, that's the one my mom loves the most. Um, Frank, what do you think? So you said you've only seen it once? Yes. Yeah. I don't, really have an, I don't have an opinion on it. It's definitely worth watching again. I might. Uh, the uh, the scene where they're they're with the uh, army recruiter, and he goes, "Now, boys, I just have to ask: uh, Are either of you homosexuals?" 
and they look at each other. It's Bill Murray and uh, Harold Ramis right. look at each other like longingly, and they go, "No, we're not, but uh, we're willing to try." And he's like, "Yeah, is, it, is there a special assignment if we if we do that?" Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's just so yeah. much good stuff. I, actually, I, I remember that scene. I mean, and everybody, everybody remembers the, the razzle-dazzle, the, the, uh, the whole formation thing. Yes, which, that's the yeah. thing that I remember the most out of that movie. And the, and the armored RV, like mm-hmm. the, you know, which is, like I guess, most of the, the third act. Right. Um, but yeah, there's just so much good stuff in it. And if we were, you know, I couldn't choose it as my favorite, uh, only because he's done so much since then. But, you know, if, if his career had ended in the... What, late eighties, early nineties, like yeah, that would be my pick. Over Ghostbusters, <sighs> maybe, because Ghostbusters is my favorite Bill Murray movie. I, I love it, but I mean, he's yeah, I, I don't know. I love I love the performance in Stripes. I think it has just more, uh, more comedy. I guess I mean Ghostbusters is great, and and Bill Murray's great in it. Um, but there's a lot of other, you know. I mean, I agree with that. Characters and everything. Yeah. I just think that, like, for my my personal experience, like Peter Venkman is my like Peter Venkman was my the guy I wanted to be when I was like a nine year old kid mm. or eight year old kid whenever I saw Ghostbusters. Even though I was probably more like Ray Stance, I guess, yeah. in real life than <laughs> Peter. But um, I think I'm Ray Stance right now. That's probably true. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what that says, but that's what I think. Um, Who's he gone Spangler? It ain't Easter. <laughs> <laughs> it ain't Orion. No. I don't know. We don't have any gone. Why is that your... Because I think the distinction you're making when you say that's your favorite movie, the movie right. Bill Murray's not performance necessarily. No. So it's like, what, what about it is your favorite? Why is that your favorite movie, though? Like, I mean, I, I think that... And we've talked about this before on the podcast, but I think that one of the things the 80s probably has over any other decade is its ability to make family-friendly movies that are entertaining and engaging and stand the test of time. And I think that, you know, like there's stuff like Back to the Future and Princess Bride, um, Goonies, and I think that Ghostbusters falls like in with that rank of film of like things that you could show a kid today and they would still enjoy it. Like, I've shown, you know, all four of those movies to my son. He likes all four of those movies. And there's a lot of stuff from, like, that era that he's not a fan of. But he loves, like, those movies. And I just think that Ghostbusters is the most fun out of all of them. I think it's the most entertaining. Um, and it's hard to say that against Princess Bride. Because Princess Bride is pretty much a perfect movie. But, like, there's just something about Ghostbusters that's really cool. And the fact that it, like, deals with the supernatural and has some scenes that when you're a kid I mean not really scary but like a little like frightening as a child and the special effects are really good in it and it's got really like it just builds memorable characters and has some of the best it's probably my favorite ensemble movie from that era just because all the actors in it are so good like even the minor role characters um what's his name uh fuck why can't I remember his name I feel really bad now uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids guy. Um, Rick Moranis. Yeah, Rick Moranis is amazing in it. Um, Sigourney Weaver's great in it. Like, all four Ghostbusters are really great. You know, you mentioned, like, like Peck is really good. Yeah. Um, the Mayor, like, really good. Like, reminds you, of, like, exactly of Ed Co- Koch. <clears throat> like, in his performance. And, I don't know, it's just like... Any Potts in a small role. Yeah, Any Potts. Very good. Yeah. 
all like also all the ancillary stuff like where they cut to like them being interviewed or you know they they have all the scenes where it's like them talking about ghosts and stuff really builds like this this feeling of like an actual interconnected world it's just it's it's just a great movie and honestly like you know i wouldn't say that it stands up against like classics of cinema or whatever but it's one of my favorite movies of all time just in terms of like being able to sit down and watch it no and i think the reaction to that movie is something i don't know if younger people could understand like how massively popular for what an entire almost probably six months oh yeah longer than that i was longer maybe because before it came out on video i guess like just um ray winstone is that right does the song for that no it's um um ray parker jr yeah ray Ray parker Parker jr Jr. that's it so ray parker jr that song was everywhere right like everywhere that you went that song was playing people had ghostbusters shirts with the logo on it everywhere that you went yeah you know, everybody talked about Ghostbusters. There was all the Ghostbusters merchandise that you could imagine. Right, you, and you and I you and I talked about this last week, like, you know, off air or whatever, but I went to the beach that summer after Ghostbusters came out, and every single store at the beach had some manner of, like, Ghostbusters merchandise front and center. And it's like, it's... Because there are cultural phenomenons now, but they mostly revolve around, like, social media or video games or whatever. Um, some sort of like electronic, and I know that like film. And they're much more transient, right? They don't last like the like back in that time where that just lasted for such a long period of time. Well, because you had, even though Ghostbusters was really popular, you had limited exposure to where you could see it. Yeah. But you know, the cartoon came out like a year or two after that and was like really popular, and there was a toy line that was really popular, and I used to see Ghostbusters cereal at one <laughs> point, you know, that was like basically just Lucky Charms, but. <laughs> somehow cooler because it was the Ghostbusters. Right. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that was Ivan Reitman, and he, of course, also directed Stripes. But, right. I mean, I think after Ghostbusters, he could direct whatever he wanted to. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, it's... it's um, direct after that, though? Uh, I, I don't... I twins? Don't... <laughs> twins. Um, <laughs> Legal Eagles? Ghostbusters 2? Kindergarten Cop? Legal Eagle, the Robert Redford movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a decent movie. Legal Eagle is his immediate follow-up to Ghostbusters. Yeah, and then Twins, and then Ghostbusters Two, and Kindergarten Cop. This is no knowledge of mine. I'm looking on Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah. Really, your follow-up to Ghostbusters when you can do anything you want Legal is Eagles. a Re- Robert Redford, Deborah Winger movie. Like that's that's bizarre. He has done some garbage. Yeah. After that. Yeah, not a lot. I mean, like what? You think Junior's garbage? Yeah, Junior's not great. Uh, Six Days, Seven Nights is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. I love Twins. I think they're still planning on making a sequel to that. Evolution is terrible. They are. Eddie Murphy's supposed to play yeah. the third brother. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, that will be interesting to see Eddie Murphy trying to do comedy again in some way. He's directing and producing it, but it's TBA. Mm-hmm. Mm. Just yeah. like the disease I think it's been I have. TBA for like five years now. That that sequel. So, Ghostbusters, good. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. And one of the few movies I remember watching on a rented VCR. Uh. <clears throat> yeah, same here. I think actually. Yeah. And I saw it in the theater too. Yeah, I wasn't old enough to be allowed to go see it in the theater. My parents went to go see it without me. 
Um, so also during that time, let's see. So, I mean, I think we can fast forward a little bit to Scrooge. Anybody? I like Scrooge a lot. Yeah, I, I really like Scrooge. Um, I mean, that was right around the same time as Groundhog Day, right? Yeah, I mean, it's like a year or two before. A couple years before. 89, right? I think, is Scrooge. Um, yeah. But, you know, had very, you know, very similar themes to Groundhog Day. But you had a um, very unlikable main character who you know, somehow... Uh, he definitely does you know, that redeems well. himself. Yeah, yeah. The, Has to learn a lesson and yeah. finds redemption and becomes a better person. Yeah, um, yeah. I, Scrooge was one of those movies again that like I, I used to see all the time on television. I think I don't know if it was a, it was. I think it might have been like a, a an overboard situation where it's like it was always on TBS <laughs> yeah. or something like that. And like so, I'd always like it like you know seven thirty five or something. Like it would like come on and I it would just I just end up watching it. Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot of really good things in Scrooge. I think he's really good in it. Amazing, amazing cast, amazing supporting cast. Yeah. Buster Poindexter, Buster yeah. Poindexter, Carol Kane, Carol Kane. yeah, <laughs> Carol Kane's fantastic in it. That might be my second favorite Christmas Carol telling. It's mm. pretty good after uh, Scrooge. Yeah, which I can't remember which. That's that's episode number one, I think, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's Ghost Movies. Um, so that's in their archives. If anybody wants to go back and listen to that episode where we talk about Scrooge. So then we move into the era that we're going to talk about more in depth, which includes what about Bob Groundhog Day and those movies as we move into the early 90s. And then we have the period of really some couple bad movies, like you already mentioned, like Operation Dumbo. It's actually larger than life. I got him Larger than life, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that Danny DeVito is Operation Yeah, terrible elephant movies. Oh, wow. Um, So then we really move into the Wes Anderson period. Now, Heaster, originally, you had thought Rushmore until you started rewatching some of his movies. I, yeah, I did. So I'm going to rely on you for this. Is like, what about Rushmore in terms of that movie and his performance that you like? Well, I mean, I, I really like his performance. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's just I'm kind of at a loss because I, I determined that I guess I didn't like I love I love the movie, first mm-hmm. off. And, you know, he plays one of the three leads, I would say, uh, because you have Jason Schwartzman as uh, Max Fisher, and you have the uh, the teacher. Um, I can't remember her name. I just watched it yesterday. Yeah. Um, and Bill Murray. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's those three, and I don't know. It's just not enough Bill Murray. I think it's, but you know, it still comes more down Bill to Murray is what you want. Well, I mean, I, I think it's just it, it's still Jason Schwartzman's movie. I mean, it's right. you know, he's he's the main character, and everything really revolves around him. And you know, my favorite scene in that movie though is a Bill Murray scene. Which one's that? It's where he's at his son's birthday party, sitting by the <laughs> pool. Yeah, and is so like watching his wife like basically cheat on him across the across the way and so just disgusted with everything that's happening and he climbs up on the diving board and like does the cannonball, cannonball yeah, and then yeah. just kind of sinks to the bottom it's um which is definitely with a, with the cigarette still in right. his mouth yeah. it's and a the, the glass of whiskey yeah and he's yeah throwing golf balls into the water for no apparent reason which is certainly a gradual reference i, I assume that wes anderson's making to some degree yeah. like when he does that but yeah i love the image of like the cigarette like you know and 
Yeah, all that. That's really good. Um, yeah, because I, I did rewatch that. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I, I, I found it interesting with Rushmore is that I still really liked it, but I did not as like it as much as I did in 1997 or whatever. Like, it still holds up. I still think it's a good movie, and I, it just kind of lost something over the years, I think. I, I don't know. I mean, I... I... I didn't like it any less. I, I think it holds up very well. Um, I notice things now that I didn't notice before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, subtle little things, uh, subtle turns of phrases, and, and, and things like that. Um, but I just, I, Bill Murray's performance in that it's it's so subdued because because this is the character he's playing, mm-hmm. and so you're not getting the kind of uh, he doesn't have much of an arc. Uh, he's at the end. He's you know much the same as he was at the beginning. Uh, he's very much a, a very similar character to uh, Royal Tenenbaum from mm-hmm. right. Royal Tenenbaums mm-hmm. um, and Steve Zizou. Yeah, but I mean, you know, I I would make the argument that if we wanted to pick the best Bill Murray performance in a in a Wes Anderson movie, it would be Life Aquatic. Sure. Um, no, so, I agree with that. It's interesting because his character in Rushmore is kind of his character in Broken Flowers and his character in Lost in Translation where he plays the... And, like, there's there's things that are dissimilar with those characters, but it's basically, like, a guy that's achieved a measure of success in his life and a manner, like, a measure of wealth and is still detached okay. and, like, disaffected. Yeah, and not happy. With yeah. Like, he, he has no... No ability to connect with the people in his life. He's kind of just alone. He's sort of just kind of like drifting through, you know. Yeah, and, I, and I think that theme runs through all of it. And I think the way I distinguish those two periods is basically the character arc is roughly the same in Rushmore, Life Aquatic, Lost in Translation, Broken Flowers. I think all four of those movies have roughly the idea of somebody who's lost, somebody who's detached from reality in some ways, who's looking for something more in life. Than what they have, even though they achieve some measure of success, right. and then really it's on a spectrum, and it's like Life Aquatic, and because it's Wes Anderson, Rushmore and Life Aquatic go a little bit more towards comedy at times, even though it's you know still has dramatic parts to it, and then Lost in Translation, Broken Flowers gets the dial gets moved to the dramatic side a little bit more. But, but it's either. always a younger person that brings him out of his like torpor, you know, and that kind of like reawakens his joie de vivre sort of in the, yeah. all those movies so, somehow in lost in translation his character seems to be wittier than his character in rushmore hmm. right in, but in he's Rush- also an established actor in lost in translation yeah well in, he's he's almost playing like more like himself you know in yeah lost in translation i think that's true um but yeah i just uh i i just could not uh could not choose that as my favorite why do you not like Lost in Translation? Let's let's, let's talk about that. Uh, I think it's just I don't I don't think the characters have enough going on. Like I don't think they I don't think they have a, a strong arc. I mean, things happen. I overall think it's boring. Doesn't it kind uh, of it takes place? And it's been probably twelve or thirteen years, maybe since I've seen Lost in Translation, but. Yeah. It takes place over the course of like a day, right? No, it takes uh, about a week. Yeah, a few days. Is it? Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, it's at least like because he's five filming like here. a Scotch commercial or something, or a yeah, cigarette commercial in Japan. Yeah, they they brought him from the United States, uh, ostensibly California, um, to do a Suntory whiskey. Ad. Yeah, that's it. And so they do like a they do a commercial or a day of filming commercials. They do a day of filming like studio photography, uh, and then they say, "Hey, can you stay stay around for Friday?" And be on this this guy's talk show. He's like Johnny Carson, which is probably one of the one of the funnier parts that you find out this guy's just kind of an outrageous character. Um, and then you know he doesn't want to stay, but then his agents and everybody push him into staying. And by that point, he's kind of wanting to stay to see this girl that he's met. And they have a very, I don't know, almost like platonic relationship. Um, well, that's kind of the mystery of it, right? Is whether or not it ever becomes non-platonic. I don't think. I mean, I just watched it. I don't think. I don't well, think they ever. Mystery. I don't think they ever allude to them having sex. No, 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 not no, no, not no, that they did. Oh, if, it would, if it would continue, right? right. It it's would, like the right. the the thing that you never know what. What she says something to him, right? Like yeah. at the end that you can't hear. Isn't that how it ends? Or he whispers to her. Uh, something said to somebody. Yeah. I, yeah. It's been so long since I've seen that movie, but yeah, somebody whispers to one of them whispers to the other at the end of that, and I know it was a big thing when that movie came out because mm. people were trying to take the audio and increase it to see what was actually being said, and you still can't tell what's being said in that scene. But it's like the idea was, is that like the beginning of them having some more deeper relationship, and that's what's being said at that point, and it's kind of you walk away not knowing. <clears throat> Yeah, it doesn't. Neither neither of those people I, do I feel that they would like run away with each other. So let me go back to. So is it a? Do you feel like a lack of connection to those characters in some way? Is that is is that what I'm? I feel like there's. I mean, I feel like there's a lack of depth to the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, it's occasionally amusing. I mean, his he him constantly getting faxes and and you know FedEx overnight packages of carpet samples from his wife and somehow like having some kind of minor arguments with her as well i mean i don't know it just didn't don't you get the impression he's willing to leave his wife for for her during the movie no really i I really don't i mean i i think he's he's beyond he's beyond that he's living his his like you know just living his life out and I don't know. It's it's been too long since I've seen it to have like a real discussion on it. But like I remember feeling like there was genuine, like almost like a taboo romantic connection because she's almost like his daughter in some ways. And I don't know. Like I really wanted them to be together at the end of that movie. I don't think it's yeah. I I, I just don't think what what's written and performed and everything that's done. I don't. I don't think it's enough. I don't think. I don't. I if there if there is any deeper meaning to it, it wasn't intended. It's something that somebody fabricated. Here's what I'll do: is we, I'll give you a category at some point of one hit wonders of the two thousands in terms of directors, and I'm sure Lost in Translation will probably make that list. You don't like Virgin Suicides? Hmm. No, she did. Um, she did something else that was good. What else did she do? It's just a joke. I wasn't being serious. <laughs> well, now, now I want to answer your question. <clears throat> so, Frank, do you have anything to say about Broken Flowers? I, I like Broken Flowers a lot. Um, what was that from? 
what year? Mm-hmm. 2005. It was Jim Jarmusch. Okay. Yeah, I remember. He, I remember. He it. plays some. He finds out that he has a son, and he goes around to all. That's right, isn't it, Frank? And then he goes around to all of his exes, trying to <clears> find out. Finds out he has a child. Yeah, right. Yeah. Not, not necessarily. He doesn't know his son. son, but yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm taking something from the ending and. And he was trying to go around and like find him, reconnect, basically. Right. Yeah, so he it's, goes to all of his exes and has all these yeah, famous actors. Like take, I, think I, I think I've seen it, but I don't Take him as, um, as Bloom from Rushmore mm-hmm. and drain all like motivation and personality. <laughs> and that's his character in Broken Flowers. But it, And I say that in that it's a fantastic performance, but he plays a shell of a man in that movie. That eventually gets like woken up into being like a person again, kind of. But there's scenes where he walks through where like there's absolutely no color in Bill Murray at all. Like he's <laughs> just, he, it's almost like black and white, like watching him hmm. like walk through some of those scenes. Oh, that sounds like, well, actually, no, that makes uh, Razor's Edge sound even better. Hmm. I've never seen Razor's Edge. I've seen Razor's Edge. Then I guess you win. I don't know. <laughs> or lose. I don't know. Is it a good movie? I don't know anything the only, about it. The only thing that comes to mind about Razor's Edge is he's uh, wooing some young lady. I don't even know where he is because it, it like he's like this globetrotter, and uh, he's like, "Oh, I have a bottle of wine here," and it's like out on the windowsill, like outside the window, and he pulls it in and like starts pouring the the red wine, and he goes, and she goes, "Well, what do you do when it gets cold out?" And he goes, "I drink white." Hmm. <laughs> That's <laughs> okay. So <laughs> this guy now. So thinking about it. So forty years, roughly, is this guy's career. Sure. Like you know, exactly forty years at this well, point, right? I mean, he starts out in what SCTV a little bit before before SNL before SNL. So it's like you know, it's over forty years, right? So it's like seven, probably like seventy two yeah. to to now. So maybe forty five years. Of a career, which I, until saying that, I wouldn't have guessed that's how many years. But what do you think the appeal has been? If, uh, and Heister, I'll start with you. What do you think the appeal is of why Bill Murray somehow has still held any kind of relevance I don't think he throughout was, that time? Was he on SCTV? I'm just looking at him to. I don't think he was. Was He was part of that troupe, though, wasn't he? Uh, but was he on TV with him? Oh, I don't know if he's on the television, but he's part of that troop. Yeah. Hmm. Him and his brother were both part of it. Okay. Brian Doyle Murray. Yeah. I always liked him. Yeah. So. So it was a question again. What? What? What do you think? Why do you think he's held his appeal for that many years to some degree, and why he's kept his relevance? I mean, I think I think part of it must be his personal charm and. The charm that he brings to characters, you know, and you know, I, I'm sure characters are written for him with that in mind. Um, he's a very funny guy. I mean, like, uh, <laughs> Groundhog Day, uh, his just his comic timing and you know, down to a facial expression or like uh, physical comedy, like. I can't think of anybody, you know, like Steve Martin is up there, but Steve Martin doesn't want to do movies or no. that kind of stuff anymore. He could still be doing exactly what Bill Murray's doing sure. if he's, he was so he's inclined. He's playing the mandolin somewhere. Sure. He's right. doing whatever he wants. 
But Bill Murray wants to continue making movies, and you know that's why we have multiple generations. Uh, yeah. You know, going and you're out right. and seeing it's, his it's, movies, it's, and it's even extended to millennials now because now he's absolutely kind of cultural icon. This like myth that goes around it's New like, York and you know yeah. like puts his hands over people's eyes uh-huh. and you know shows up at softball games and starts playing with people and there's these myths around Bill Murray now um, that, that that's mean to death. Um, so Frank, what, what do you think in terms of like why he stayed relevant for so long? I mean, I think I think I think Jason hits close, pretty close to my same feelings. Like, here's a guy that can like swing from like charming and vaguely conceited and witty to hang dog and just beaten down. And it's like, just like slight shifts of expression or slight shifts of posture and how he has his hair particularly combed at the time because like, (laughs) and like, I don't think enough can be said about how much Bill Murray's hair is a part of Bill Murray's character. Oh, and like, I agree. Like one tuft, like poking up, can like make you feel like he's on the verge of like losing it, and then like the two tufts on the side like sticking <laughs> out, and he's completely frazzled. And then like Bloom in Rushmore, like is like perfectly quaffed sometimes, and feels like controlled, and other times it's just like it's crazy, and he feels like out of control, and it's and his eyes like. Bill Murray probably has the most expressive eyes that can go from being like completely alive and bright to like dead in like moments in the same movie and express like so much. And he's not classically handsome either. Like it's not like Steve Martin is a handsome guy. And no matter what Steve Martin does, like he always has this. And I, I, I like Steve Martin like to a point. I actually like Steve Martin better as a dramatic actor than I do. As a comedic actor, and I like Bill Murray just as much equally in both. But, like, Bill Murray, he's, he's pockmarked, and he's got kind of, like, a little bit of a weird, like, Play-Doh-y, like, malleable yeah, face. He's, he's kind of goofy, goofy features. <laughs> but, like, the personality and the way that he, like, like, the way that, like, his cheekbone, like, his, like, the his cheeks, like, push up when he smiles, and, like, his jowls droop when he frowns, and he just has this amazingly, like, like, it's an everyman face that also is, like, completely alien, almost, like, anyone else in Hollywood. Like, nobody else looks like Bill Murray. Nobody else really carries themselves like Bill Murray. And I think that's, you know, I, I think it allows him to bridge that gap between, like, pure comedy, you know, pure drama and everything in between and still be really effective. I think he's a really underrated actor in that respect, too, because you don't really think of Bill Murray. But, like, looking through... His Wikipedia entry, like, as we've been talking, like, he's been nominated for Best Supporting Actor and Best Actor, like, not in, like, the Oscars, but from, like, Screen Actors Guild and, like, all kinds of, like, organizations that recognize those things so many times. And it's just, it's it's pretty impressive that a guy who you really think of as kind of, like, just a comedic actor has so much, like, acclaim, I guess, from, from his peers and from, like, the critical, critical community. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so let's go ahead and move on to the two movies that were chosen. So, Jason, we're going to start with you. Uh, You chose 1993's Groundhog Day, directed by Harold Ramis, of course, starring Murray, also Andy McDowell, Chris Elliott, Stephen Tobolowsky, and um, Brian Doyle Murray. His brother has a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and 88% from audiences. 
Did you want to go ahead and just very briefly explain the plot of this movie for those that might not know it? And then go ahead and start telling us why you like it so much. Sure. Um, Bill Murray plays a, a local weathercaster in the Pittsburgh uh, market. And um, he's desperate to get out of uh, the, the uh, Pittsburgh market and go to network and uh, be a big deal uh, somewhere else. And he treats his co-workers and, and the, the station he works for accordingly, it seems like. They, they set that up pretty well. Um, so he's, he's not, not well-liked among his peers. Um, and he's sent to cover the uh, Groundhog Day festivities at Gobbler's Knob uh, in uh, Punxsutawney, 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 PA. And he's miserable about it, and they send him with... Uh, uh, a cameraman and a producer uh, to do this. So, you know, so they go to spend one night and get the footage they need and then leave. And somehow, for some reason, which is never explained, he uh, ends up replaying the same Groundhog Day uh, for a long, long time um, until he somehow breaks the spell and then is allowed to continue with his life. Okay, so let's start with Murray's performance. Obviously, we kind of base this off of Murray's best performance. Sure. So what is it about Bill Murray here as Phil Connors that stands out to you so much that makes his best performance? I just think that it has an incredibly convincing character arc that goes from uh, being this very conceited, um, very inconsiderate, uh, unliked, unloved, uh, guy to, you know, it, the, the situation, he doesn't even realize what's happening, but it forces him to um, redeem himself uh, over perhaps a number of years. Uh, it, you know, they never really tell you how many times he had to uh, play this day over and over, but, you know, he learned multiple languages. He He's read seemingly dozens or hundreds of books, learns to play piano, um, you know, does so much and, and spends so much time on himself um, and doing things for others that he just comes out the other end a changed man. Uh, and it's convincing. I mean, it's, you know, it, it, he's, Bill Murray's able to play both sides of that convincingly, not that he's acting at the end and be, you know, he's, the character is being sincere and is sincerely a changed person. Uh, it's, you know, it's really good and it's really funny. And I mean, just everything about it, there's, you know, well, yeah, we'll get onto that, but okay, yeah, so that's the performance. Okay. So what else do you like about it? Though? Uh, just, this is another movie that, um, I probably think about a line, a scene, something from that movie, you know, easily once a week, if not more. I mean, you know, watching it again, it's just, it's packed so tight with so many jokes and so much stuff going on and you know there's like nothing to cut out um it's just it's just masterfully done um and i mean it's you know it's uh harold ramus directing and with a small part uh acting as well um but just there's like there's just so much funny stuff in it give, give me some give, what, what are some of your favorite scenes then um some of my favorite, or favorite scenes. bits, I guess, since it's so repetitive in nature. Like, what are some of your favorite bits, maybe, that like in terms of the repetition of each day playing some of the same scenes? 
Yeah, I mean, there's uh, some of the funny stuff is just um, him uh, taking advantage of his his predicament to uh, pick up women or to um, you know he commits suicide in a number of you know in any way possible, and that's really funny. I mean, it shouldn't be funny, but uh, it's it's very funny to see him you know keep doing that and being frustrated about it. Um, I'm trying to think what else. I mean, I always, I always, you know, love the love the line where uh, Annie McDowell is trying to convince him that, uh, you know, people are nice. Nice people are nice. And he goes, you know, people like blood sausage. People are morons. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's that's really funny. And uh, uh, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think what Ned else. Ned Ryerson. Ned Ryerson. Ned is one yeah. that sticks out to me. Oh yeah. Stephen Tobolowsky, like, um, coming up to him on the street, introducing himself uh-huh. over and over. And is, I'm trying to remember because I didn't get a chance to watch this when you changed uh, your pick. But is the end sequence with that the one where he ends up hugging him? I believe is so, that, yeah. Where, the he, very last where, he, where he just hu- he holds him in this lo- hugs him in this long embrace <laughs> and lovingly and, and says... Uh, you know, I don't know where you're going, but can you call in sick? <laughs> <laughs> and he and then Stephen Tobolowsky just goes, uh, yeah. <laughs> until he releases him, yeah. and then like runs away. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, there's all that stuff. There's uh, just all the stuff. You know, Bill Murray just you know doing everything so well. The all the all the lines. I'm trying to think what else. Um, hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, one thing I think is like when I think about that movie is how complex of a movie that really is when it comes down to it because there is so much repetition. Sure. And how, what a good job. To me, it's like what a good job Ramus actually does in that movie of being able to keep that coherent both in from a direction standpoint and from, I guess, an editing standpoint later on of making that such a coherent film. From start to finish, in some ways, um, so I, that's always that was one of the things that always impressed me about that movie. As I thought about it over the years, is that it's it's, a, it's it could go so many different ways, and just like you pull a couple of threads, then it just falls apart. And I always thought Ramis did a really good job of holding that together. Overall, I just I just remembered uh, another line, and that is uh, he goes downstairs in the BMB where he's staying, and he goes, "It's the it's the second or third time he's repeating it," and he goes. Uh, or maybe the second day, the first repeat day, and he goes, uh, "Mrs. Winchester, she's like running the the B and B. Mrs. Winchester, do you ever have deja vu?" And she goes, "Oh, I don't know. I can check with the kitchen though," <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. Yeah. That's... Um, now I don't know if you know this that when they were looking at actors initially for this role, the two that they looked at before Ramus ended up going to Murray about the role uh, one was Tom Hanks mm. just I didn't immediate, know that. immediate reaction how do you think do you think Tom Hanks could pull that role off it wouldn't have been as funny yeah. I mean yeah you know, I think yes he could have done it I think it would have like come off as much more of a rom-com yeah um, and I you know I was afraid when I like was watching it again I was thinking about it I was like is this is this really I don't think it's a rom-com I don't. I don't think that you could really pigeonhole it that way. I mean, I think it's just a comedy. It's some sort of supernatural comedy. I mean, it's any more than like big is a rom com. 
Yeah, I mean, it has elements of a romantic comedy embedded yeah. in it, but I think it's just a comedy. Right, well, the romance is ancillary to, like, his growth as a person. Yeah. Over the course of however many years he's doing the same day. Yeah. Um, the other a- actor that was approached was Michael Keaton. Hmm. I didn't know that either. Um, I don't know, that's interesting. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of what that would look like of Michael Keaton, because he could play smug. Right. But could he do? Uh, could he be what sincere? Is, what is, hmm? Could he be sincere? Could he be sincere? Um, I I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know what the mania would like. The manic stuff that happens sometimes, where it's like the where he goes. I don't know if he has a sarcasm, Keaton. I oh, I think he has a sarcasm. But you think, mm, I think I don't. Sarcasm. I don't trust Michael Keaton. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 accurate. I, and it's like while I love the scene. You you want to get nuts? Let get, let's get nuts in Batman, where it's like <laughs> yeah. you kind of like lose it. I think if he was doing too much of that at times, then it wouldn't be any good. So I, I don't know. I just can't see Keaton in that role in some ways. I think if Tom Hanks played it like he plays the character in um, uh, the Burbs, I think okay. he could do it because his character yeah. in the Burbs is an asshole. Yeah, you've made that claim before, and I see. I get where you're coming from. But I'm I don't on vacation. But I don't know if I don't know if I agree with you. He's just a guy that wants a few days off. <laughs> he just wants a piece of quiet, Frank. I don't know. We'll yeah, talk, we'll, a, we'll, we're going to talk about the burp someday. I'm sure he's we'll, such we'll, a dick. We'll, 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 we'll. Um, <clears throat> so I think I relate more to to Ray Peterson now than I ever have in my life. I just want some peace and quiet. Um, <laughs> so. I honestly, I spent the day going through tons of reviews of Groundhog Day, trying to find somebody criticizing his performance in this, and I couldn't do it. So I did find something that speaks to part of his performance in that one of the criticisms, uh, one of the few negative reviews I found of this movie by David Nazaire of Real Film Reviews, he says that one element that he doesn't like is he thinks that there's a total lack of chemistry between Andy McDowell and Bill Murray in this movie. And he thinks that it, that whole subplot completely falls apart because it seems like those two would never be together ever from the way that they act with one another. Well, I mean, I think, I think, I don't, I don't think that's accurate. I mean, I I think that at the beginning, I think it's intentional at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I think it works very well that, um, they would not, but you could also tell from the first time they meet that Bill Murray's kind of intrigued, even though she's totally not like his type, if he has a type. Mm. And probably at that point, his type was just as bad as he was. He was never like, you know, looking for a, a real relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then by the end of the movie, he's he's changed. He's, he's selfless. Um, I think it works. So, and you and you believe the relationship. Yeah, and also, and, you know, once again, like I, I do love this movie because the whole the whole premise, um, it doesn't spoon feed you. It doesn't tell you. It doesn't tell you why why this happened. Mm-hmm. It doesn't tell you how many days he spent doing that. But but you have to assume it's been. I mean, hundreds of days. I mean, I, it, yeah. it's a very long period of time, yeah. and he is he has a an evolution of his personality, of his spirit, of his, you know, outlook on the world. 
Um, and one of the things that, and, and also, so he's dealing with the Andy McDowell's character daily, you know, um, and so you don't see every interaction. You only see, you know, the important, important points as it goes forward. And you can see with, you know, I, I do really like the part where he has a really good day, day with her that almost becomes like, you know, the best day ever. Um, but just doesn't, he feels that he doesn't get it right. And then the next day he tries to do the same stuff, but he's trying so hard that it, that it fails miserably. Mm-hmm. And he has a series. And then after that, there's like a montage of, you know, perhaps dozens of other dates that they had together that, that fail because he's going through all the motions, but he's not a changed person at that point. Right. And it's not until he truly, like I said, becomes selfless and, you know, is doing things for others and not just trying to advance his agenda that he, you know, it's, you know, it's kind of a, kind of an Eastern philosophy type movie, like Zen Buddhism or something, maybe. Okay. And also karma, hmm. I think. Right, I think that's, you know, it's, it's the endless loop of, like, getting it right, of, like, reincarnation, basically, but he's mm-hmm. reincarnating as himself. Yeah. In the same moment over and over again, basically. I also would argue that um, I don't think that Andy McDowell has any chemistry with anyone. (laughs) No, I I agree with that. I accused my mom last night because she does not like Groundhog Day, she Mm. said. And I said, it's probably because you don't like Andy McDowell, right? Because my mother, for some reason, has a lot of hatred towards a lot of actresses. Um, (laughs) And and she's like, no, no, I like her. And which one I don't actually believe, but two I also realized I don't like Andy McDowell, and I was putting myself onto her and, and transferring that. So yeah, I just don't really care for Andy McDowell. I think she just kind of is the female that he's trying to win over. In I think Andy McDowell is a very good placeholder for a real person in any movie that she's in. <laughs> I thought she was good in this. If if it's possible that her character was not completely fleshed out somehow yeah i I just think she's uh she's kind of a plot device for him to show his growth in some ways yes i'll I'll buy that um okay any final thoughts on this um no but i did i did remember (laughs) i remembered another line when he's doing his uh piano lessons and he keeps on going to the the one piano teacher in this the town and uh you know he's taking you know dozens hundreds of piano lessons but every time it's his and she goes he's playing he's playing quite well and she goes really you never had any piano lessons before he goes no but my father was a piano mover so (laughs) (laughs) and i wonder too how much of that because ramus would let him get away with it i bet you there's tons of ad living that's i'm sure that he's just doing spur of the moment yeah, although I mean, uh, most of it has to be, you know, a lot of it has to be written because no, a lot of um, it is. But I'm sure Raymond's let him get away with stuff. Yeah, <clears throat> I just don't know how much of the the stuff that I remember. Um, you know, there, there's also his speech about, uh, you know, when he's kind of like at his lowest, and they they want to know what the what the weather's going to be like, and he goes, uh, you know, it's going to be cold. It's going to be gray, and it's going to last for the rest of your life. I mean, he says it with such conviction. I yeah. Mean, like, you know, just, like, sucks you into that. 
Yeah. The, um, the piano mover thing just seems like it's like they had a joke there, and <laughs> that seems like Murray's sense of humor to me. Yeah. Is, is, is that line. Okay, so Frank, uh, let's move over. We're going to go two years back in time from 93 to 1991 for your pick, which is What About Bob, directed by Frank Oz, starring Murray, Richard Dreyfus, Julie Haggerty, Catherine Herbe. Um, it has 83% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, a 79% from audiences. You want to go ahead and just briefly explain the concept of the movie and what you like about it. So Murray plays Bob Wiley, who is a uh, neurotic mess, um, addicted to psychologists and therapy, um, who gets foisted on to Richard Dreyfus's Leo Marvin character, who's a, sort of like a rising star of, you know, like, I don't know, like therapy and... He has a book published called Baby Steps, and he's, like, becoming famous. He's going to be interviewed on Good Morning America. Um, and Bob immediately, like, latches on to him and starts attributing, like, any minor success he has in his life to Leo Marvin's amazing, you know, therapy. Uh, Leo goes to New Hampshire for vacation, and Bob follows him. And gradually integrates himself into the life of Leo's family to the point of driving Leo to insanity, who then attempts to murder him, um, which cures Bob this attempted murder of his supposed, like, whatever, multiple psychosis, and then Bob marries his sister. <laughs> Dr. Leo Marvin's sister. Right? Yeah, Dr. Not Leo Bob's. Marvin's right, sister. Right, yeah. Yeah. Presumably Bob, like, has never had any family at all, or they've all abandoned him. So I'll start off the same way. What is particularly about this Murray performance? Do you, is the why it's the best to you? So, I like I, I I I love Murray in a lot of movies. I think he's a great actor. But I think that this is, to me, his singularly most memorable performance, where he doesn't really fit in with any like previous character that he's been because he's so uniquely psychotic in every way but still like somehow lovable and he plays bob as this incredibly intelligent like almost like surreptitiously intelligent person that knows all these things because he's forced himself to learn it because he's ostensibly so afraid of the entire world but also as like a chameleon character where there's really subtle things in a lot of scenes in this movie that honestly I didn't even catch until I watched it again recently where so there's a scene where he goes with um, Anna, uh, the Herbe character, who's the daughter of Leo Marvin, and he's walking down the road and Anna picks him up and she's going sailing. And the way that Murray moves in the, he's in like their, whatever, their Jeep, their, their, their SUV or whatever. The way he moves, the way he puts his hands to his face, the way he squirms is very teenage girl-esque. So he's almost like becoming her in that scene. And then in like a couple scenes after that, um, he stays the night at the Marvin house and is with the son. And all of his mannerisms and his voice and his modulation becomes very like preteen boy to the point of them making the... Um, I just want a little peace and quiet. And Bob's like, I'll be quiet. And then Ziggy's like, I'll be peace. And they both bury their face in a pillow and like laugh. And it's just, it's so 
I think What About Bob is kind of like a horror movie in a lot of ways. <laughs> and I think that Leo Marvin is actually a pretty... Like, he's... The 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 interaction between Dreyfus and Murray, and you, you pointed this out to me, I didn't know it, but then like I read it since in reading about it, that like they hated each other. They did not get along <laughs> with each other at all. And one of the things that makes it so effective is Dreyfus was like, okay, I don't like you, but that's the whole point, so just be yourself. So when I react to that, it'll be natural and it'll seem like, and it is convincing. Like you can tell that he hates that, that person, but Bob has insinuated himself into this man's life in like, like the deepest way. And all the guy's trying to do is just be on TV and like be successful and enjoy his vacation. And, you know, he's condescending and he has all this hubris and, probably not that like fun of a person to be around but leo marvin's not a bad guy you know and they it's funny because you have the greek chorus in this movie and this is kind of getting away from murray's performance of um the two old people that Mm -hmm. wanted to buy the house that are so happy about every like ill that befalls leo marvin but like he didn't know that they wanted to buy that house he just he bought a house that was for sale and like they basically are trying to ruin this man's life because he did something that wasn't even a conscious decision to make. And it's like all those things, like the way that the way that Oz directs the movie, I think the first time you see it, you kind of feel like Leo Marvin is the villain. Like that's how it's painted that he's the bad guy and you sympathize with Bob, but watching it this time, I was going to think Bob, Bob is the villain of this movie. Like Bob is not, never has anything but his own self-interest at heart and is doing everything he can to like almost usurp Leo's position as the head of this household by like being the father figure to the kids and being like the comforting guy that does the dishes with the wife and you know there's another there's a line that he says when Leo's being was is being medicated right the librium thing right <laughs> right well oh, there's because, that but it, yeah well he's, he's just been around so many psychiatrists right right that was so a hilarious he's, scene he's like an amateur psychiatrist but again right. to my point like the night before that he was acting like a child right you know like bouncing on a bed and cursing and being crazy mm-hmm. and is so sure of himself and the way that he presents the information feels like how a doctor would mm-hmm. say to a colleague like you know perhaps you should consider another you know type of medication because of his whatever it's his anxiety mm-hmm. levels and like the other doctors mm, i'll take that into consideration and, 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 and gets this guy medicate gets this guy this medication or prescribed this medication then is the doctor's leaving it's like it's like okay i'll be the dad it's okay i'll be the dad for now yeah and really does usurp his position right. in that family and which leads to Leo trying to kill him. Yeah, and Leo's the only person that sees it. And right. you get the impression that this isn't the first time that Bob has done this because the one of the opening scenes is Bob's former, you know, psychiatrist like really I like antagonistically passing Bob on to Leo Marvin because you can tell that like if any if anyone deserves him, it's you or whatever yeah, uh-huh. he says to him. But this guy who's like quitting the practice and is frazzled and right. trying well, Bob, to flee. Bob's driven him insane is the idea. And Leo Marvin's such an asshole. Right. And is so full of himself that this guy's paying it forward in, a, in of, an awful way. Well, yeah, but he's, he's doing it out of self-preservation because he's... The, the, his previous psychiatrist and, is is going insane. Right. Like, and, 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 and spite, I think, that like... 
here's this like prima donna asshole of my profession. Sure. I'm just going to give him because this is the guy that deserves to be well, yeah, he's, like he's, driven insane. He's the guy in the high rise in New York City and like uh, New York City, Boston. It's, it's, it's New, New York, York City. City. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, yeah, he's he's writing books and yeah. baby steps and believes in some way that he's like the spiritual successor to Sigmund, Sigmund Freud, Freud right? where he names his daughter Sigmund. As if he's naming him after himself, but names his his right. son Sigmund, right. and then his daughter Anna, who was Sigmund Freud's daughter. Right. So I don't know, but my, one of my favorite like Dreyfus and Murray interactions is like the very first one, where he's sitting there and he's leaning on his desk like a little bit to the left, and he's got his hand like kind of touching his chin, and he's just like weighing Bob, and Bob's like, "Oh, should I start?" <laughs> and it's just like like this guy trying to exert all this like power over his patient. And the patient doesn't even care. Like, from the very beginning, Bob's completely in control of, like, everything that's happening in their interactions. And he's so crazy sometimes in this movie. Like, when he first gets to the town and he gets off the bus and he's just, like, spinning in a circle going, Dr. Leo Marvin! (laughs) Dr. Leo Marvin! Like, in every direction. Like, hoping to... And, like, like, what's he hoping to accomplish there? But it's just... And immediately like, can switch to just this normal, you know, like the, the Marvin tries to have him committed, and he That's immediately charms the entire favorite, staff yeah. with the jokes. Yeah. No, I'm a schizophrenic, and so am right, I. Right. Roses are red, violets are blue, I'm a <clears throat> schizophrenic, and so am I. And then there's the dirty pictures joke. Right. You're the one showing me the dirty pictures. Right. right. Um, and just the fact that it's like this uproarious laughter, like... These terrible, <laughs> terrible jokes. Right, but the uproarious laughter. But the the, the the female doctor that's in charge of the place calls Leo up like what within an hour of him. Probably. I don't even think it's that. Long. It's not even that long. But he gets home, he gets a call from, and her. he has to turn around and, and like, come all the way and, back, and wants to save him the embarrassment right. of trying to commit. Well, no, Bob. He, yeah, no, he he wanted to, he had to go get him back because right. But she wants to save yeah, yeah, the yeah. embarrassment right. of like having to report that he tried to commit right. someone. Yeah. So it also calls into question like what anyone in the professional community actually thinks of Leo Marvin. That thirty minutes of talking to a person completely overrides this other this man's professional opinion. Where they're like, "Yeah, he was just wrong. Like this guy's fine." But how how do you reconcile that Bob was like uh, crippled by his phobias at the beginning uh, to the point that he couldn't leave his apartment except to go to this other? I mean, I guess is you know is this only one part of his phobia? Because he's right, like, who knows? You know, I mean, it's it's such a it's well, such it seems a, like he almost. Uh, Maybe and maybe be that chameleon aspect you're talking about. It seems like he takes on different phobias, right? At based times, on where he is, based on and the situation he's in. So here's my again, like my argument that Bob is actually the villain of this movie. In that opening scene where they meet each other, one of the first things he does is walk over and go, "Oh, is this the fam? Is this your wife and kids? Hey, Who's Charlie. this?" And right. it's like, "Oh, that's my sister. Oh, she's very lovely." And then immediately is able to baby step like everywhere and baby step on a bus. So this man who's got such crippling phobias that he has to work from home, he can't even leave his house, he just lives with his goldfish, is all of a sudden able to overcome those things. And I think because, honestly, he's trying to take Leo Marvin's family, like, the whole time. Like, he wants... Well, I mean, if that's the case, then he probably did that to the previous psychiatrist right. as well. Or all that and, and more and worse. And Which is why the psych- Which is why that guy is so, like, it's so imperative that he gets rid of Bob. Sure. So, but it's it's... That even makes the performance to me even better because you always root for Bob, like in every scene, like you like Bob. 
and he gets you as well like on his side like leo marvin is the asshole in that entire movie and richard dreyfus plays that part perfectly like his his like seething frustration at being like one-upped by this guy that he considers to be an insane ninny basically um the whole thing with with the with, with the the freud bust and like the should, should i sit here should i sit here is this a fireplace scene and yeah. then he like freaks out because it's not a fireplace scene anymore with I, good morning I, america i really love his, his his portrayal of hysteria towards the end when he's trying to kill bob yeah and Lee, leaves him in the forest and what if bob asks him well, are you well, you'll take care of gill for me as goldfish right and he's like yeah bob i'll take care of him and then I'm going to cook him and eat him. And it's just like, he's so crazy and out of his mind. He's walking point. back. But with glee, like he's Another so... piece of fish? Yeah. Right. Um, I, I, yeah Dreyfus... I'm not going to shoot you, Bob. I'm going to blow you up. So I don't know, Janet Maslin, I don't know if this agrees or disagrees with you or what at this point. Um, one of the things that Maslin said is that she thinks it has a lot of promise in the, in the beginning of the movie. And that it takes a wrong turn around the time that Bob and the family meet because the film at that point puts the emphasis on Bob's lovability so much um, that he becomes just as annoying to the audience as he does to <laughs> Leo Marvin. How do you feel about that exactly? Is like, do, you, do you feel annoyed with Bob in that movie as a viewer? I, I don't know, no. I mean, I feel... There's some parts about Bob where you... You because he's he's aping like a normal person you know he gets the shirt like don't hassle me i'm local you know i'm saying y'all like i'm practically like a townie now y'all uh -huh. you know but it's all contrived on bob's part i think and it's like i think that's the brilliance of the performance is that it is an inherently unlikable character that to any normal person would be abhorrent like you would not want to be around this person if you actually had to interact with them but murray is so likable and so it's just so controlled like in every scene like even though it feels like he's playing crazy like there's a real like control to that performance that just makes it like it makes him lovable and i don't know like because because the opposite of that is leo marvin's like manic hateful stuck up you know, and they do so much to make you think Leo Marvin's like a like a windbag and a blowhard and not a very like loving father and not a very supportive husband and very self-involved. But the man is like basically on the precipice of the most important day of his life or of his career in the thing that's going to make him like from a successful, you know, like person in his field to like a like a renowned superstar almost and this lunatic is there ruining it like how would like how would any normal person react if on like the day that you're going to be interviewed by national television some insane person refuses to like stop taking your toothbrush and stop like wearing your clothes and won't get off your porch i mean that's it, it, well it's funny because Ma i'm reading this paragraph right here from maslin and maslin's made just made the exact same point you did and she doesn't find it funny she finds she sympathizes with the leo marvin character right because okay so it's it's basically a single white female mm -hmm. but it's a comedy mm -hmm. and it's like all of them do such a good job and i think that frank oz in a very like understated way does a brilliant job directing it the way that he like 
the score is like very lighthearted and like bubbly and it like the score moves. is really good it's one of the few things i noticed like like bounces you along from scene to scene and it like matches bob's like kind of like energy and but it really is like a horrifying situation this guy who's like there and won't leave and is harassing you constantly and leo marvin as much of an asshole as he is really is like you know like the sympathetic character like he's trapped in this horror movie that eventually leads him like his house blowing up and him going into like a catatonic state that he only wakes up from when he realizes the thing he hates the most is marrying his sister that he obviously loves like those are the those are the moments where you see the most like actual human affection from dreyfus in the marvin role is when he sees his sister like he genuinely loves his sister and you know is like shocked into realizing that yeah. <laughs> this monster has accomplished what he set out to accomplish and he had no ability to stop it. You'll be, you'll be happy to hear that uh, somebody did uh, cut together a horror trailer for What About Bob? If, that's, you, if, you, if you search for it on YouTube. You can that's appropriate. That. I've yeah. never seen that, but that's really funny. Yeah, But it really, I mean, it's seriously a single white female. Like, that's what Bob is yeah. doing to Leo Marvin, but it makes you laugh because Bill Murray is so talented at, like, like, and you brought this up. We were talking about this movie the other night a little bit. Like, when he's leaving the house the one time and he kind of, like, trips over the, I don't know, from the mulch to the, like, driveway and right. sort of starts, like, kicking. And, like, you told me that was, like, an improvised scene. And yeah, apparently he tripped. Yeah. There's just so much, like, small things that, that Murray does that has this childlike exuberance and he makes you laugh. Like, I'm sailing! I'm, and he's tied to the front of, like, to the mast of the boat and... You know, the whole, like, being afraid of the water and then getting pushed in by Richard Dreyfus after he helps Ziggy, like, right. dive, which is, like, the one thing that Dreyfus wants to do as a dad is, like, teach his son how to dive, uh-huh. and yeah. I don't know. There's, it's, it's yeah. really funny, like, again, watching it the other day, like, I really feel like it stands up. I, I really wish I had watched Groundhog Day now. I wish I had known earlier, because I, I love that movie, too, but, like, I don't know, I just, it's, it's such a singular performance, and so different from like his really his other characters while still being like incredibly familiar and incredibly recognizably bill murray do you feel the ending of the movie is rushed in any way that it seems to come out of left field from what part from the from the death therapy sequence where he tries to kill bob to the end of that movie do you think it feels it's kind of tacked on. It's it's a very quick transition for Leo Marvin from being like frustrated and angry to being homicidal. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. But I'm saying even from homicidal to catatonic to the end of that film, like nah, how is he going to end like, it? Two minutes, probably. Like, really, what else does it matter? Because that's that's the whole point. I know. I saw that as a criticism of the movie. I don't mind because I, I like that transition of Leo being like catatonic and then immediately transitioning into the wedding scene where he yeah. is. Probably jumping ahead several months. Or yeah, something like right. That. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not 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 with maybe, Bob. That's probably like two weeks. Maybe I could see <laughs> one minor thing where it's maybe they could have figured out a way to show that passage of time in some way a little bit more yeah. or something along those lines or do some sort of thing with cutting to where it's like him going catatonic and then him like kind of coming to during the wedding. Like I think there's some some way you could have shown like it's all, almost the I, ultimate I think you're asking, I think you're asking a lot of this movie. <laughs> yeah, because because to it wasn't at, that kind of movie, Chris. At that point, like the the it's already done. Like yeah. they're just giving you a, a coda that makes it even funnier. You know that Leo Marvin has lost like everything, literally. Right, because Bob publishes a book. Right, and then yeah. sues him. Right on the death therapy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I I don't know. I mean, like the. 
I think you're giving this a lot of credit. <laughs> more more credit than I gave it. Because um, I, I felt it was a little more formulaic. I mean, I, I, I get where you're saying. I wasn't convinced by the 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 ultraphobic Bob like also having also having great rapport with everybody and being like you said smart but not smart enough to realize Dr. Marvin is trying to kill him. No, I think he doesn't care. Uh, and uh, uh, see, I don't believe that Bob ever has any phobias at all. Mm-hmm. I think Bob's a sociopath. I think he has some sort of dependent some sort of I think if any of it's true, there's some sort of uh, mental problem when it comes to dependency. Well, I mean, they, like, they said they said at the beginning that he was married previously, and right, his wife yeah. divorced him, and he uh, he attributed to her not liking uh, or him not liking Neil Diamond. Yes. Is that right? right? Yes. And she yeah. does, or yes. vice versa. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, two types of people: one <laughs> those that like Neil Diamond and those stuff. Right. Which is you know probably made up. Right. But, yeah. Uh, Who knows if anything that Bob but says that, is that true? But that apparently is when he became like ultraphobic. Right. Yeah. Or had whatever. Well, 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 no, but then Leo Marvin makes him realize that maybe it was him, his phobias kind of like the way he was acting led her. Oh, of course. Right. And he think, and Bob just thinks it's the Neil Diamond thing. Oh, that, right. Well, yeah. Because, that she actually broke up but of course with he, but him if, as opposed if to he's, him breaking if, up with her over Neil Diamond. If he's any smarter than he appears to be from everything he says, then he already knew that. Sure. Right. And I mean, that's, and who that's knows reasonable. And true in the first place. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, who knows if he was ever even married. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, by, by Frank's estimation, it was probably, you know, he probably killed her. I mean, and there is some, and there is some, and there is some evidence to suggest that I think that you might be right because of that sequence with the therapist at the beginning. Right. He's obviously driven this guy over the edge, right. too. So... And is that just him being annoying? Is it because and just because of that's who he is? Because of all these different phobias and the dependency? I mean, because obviously things? he like, or is it a calculated thing? I think that's really the right. He inserts himself into a life and then refuses to leave it. Yeah. Like he will like make himself part of. And it's funny because Doctor Marvin's family is so immediately eager just to welcome him in, sure, and excuse any poor behavior. But what's the but what's the bad? I mean. What's the bad thing that he does? I mean, he blew up their house, but... No, technically, Leo Marvin blew up his own house. Yes, yes. By trying to blow up Bob. Because <laughs> nothing. That's the thing. Yeah. Is, that, is, is from, an, from any perspective other than Leo Marvin's perspective, like, nothing is wrong with Bob, basically. Right. He's just, he's a fun guy. He's friendly. So he, he's, a, he's a psychopath that only targets psychiatrists. Yeah. Is it possible he's a Scientologist? It could be. That's an interest. That's that, that's a much much broader interpretation than I had. But did you? Frank, he he knows too much about medicine. <laughs> right. Did you know that Woody Allen was originally? Called? You told me that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that would be Dr. terrible. Leo Marvin. That he was originally. Right. That would have been awful. Yeah, it seems like a really weird choice. It's almost like Woody Allen would be better playing. Bob. He just could play. He could just Leo play Marvin. both parts. Yeah, right. <laughs> Diagnose himself and then have sex with the <laughs> the Catherine Irby character, <laughs> who I immediately recognize from SVU. Right? She's, uh, yeah. Coming on ten, right? I don't know. Well, one of those shows. One of them, yeah. Something I caught five seconds of when yeah. my wife was watching it. Yeah, she was. Yeah, she has a couple of good roles around that time. Like she, um, she was in Oz uh, as a death row inmate for a while in Oz. 
Uh, oh, not to change the subject, but do you realize that, um, now I can't remember her name, um, was a student in Rushmore um, from uh, Gilmore Girls? Alexis Bledel? Yeah. Yeah, I saw her, I saw her when I was rewatching. She her. wasn't, yeah, she wasn't, uh, wasn't credited, but she was in the front row in right. the classroom. Yep. I was I like, saw, wait I a second. Yeah. She had a very unique yeah. Well, as well, Eyes, like, know, the, yeah. like the like the sure. Catherine Herbie. Herbie. Yeah. yeah, Catherine Her- the Anna character in this movie is very much like all all American Girl Next Door with bad bangs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're it, it, they were time, early time early nineties bangs. <laughs> time period appropriate bangs. She got she got the Tracy Bonham bangs going on. <laughs> the the other person they approached before Dreyfus was um, Patrick Stewart. Yeah, he's too he's. Too dry, too powerful. Right, <laughs> you you would never you would never imagine that Bob Wiley could get the better of Patrick Stewart. Right, yeah. He's already seen it coming. Right, he's seen everything. He's seen it all. Um, Dreyfus is perfect in that role. Uh, I don't know yeah. if I'm a huge Richard Dreyfus fan, but in that yeah. specific sense, like he's everything about him is just like he's got like because he's got the same haircut, the same beard as Sigmund Freud. He tries to like maintain those mannerisms. So like as you see him crack apart. From the assault, basically, of like this lunatic, it's um, it's pretty great. It's, it's a really funny performance. So, based off of these two movies, I mean, they come so closely together, and they come in that to- that early nineties time period. Would you say that that is basically the the apex of Murray's career? Do you think is right around that time? I, I mean, as as a as a um main character leading man comedic actor maybe okay i mean i think he do you think there's a better overall time period then i mean i think what he's doing now as a as a comic actor i think he just i mean i think if a really good project where he was the the star came along that was straight up comedy he would do it um unlike tom hanks who just doesn't want to be funny for an hour and a half or two hours anymore Right, it'll be um, funny for two minutes and a cameo on something. Yeah, and yeah, he'll do some funny parts, you know, it's funny stuff during his dramatic, you know, thing or yeah, or cameo, right, or on SNL. Yeah, I wonder if that's one of the reasons because you know, like we talked about earlier, like Dreyfus and Murray hated each other. I wonder if that's like one of the reasons why is that I don't think that Murray has any real. I don't know, like hubris about the things that he does. Like, I think that if he has a part that he wants to do, because he's in some really bad movies where he still does a good job. Like, he's in, like, in Wild Things, he's good. Mm -hmm. And that's not a good movie, but he makes that movie better, like, by his presence. He's in Zombieland playing himself, and to great effect. I mean, I think he was very good, and that was a very good movie. Yeah, I enjoy Zombieland. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, he's, like, one of the. But he's apparently pretty volatile, though. As a personality, like yeah. people, a lot of people don't get along with Bill Murray. Right. I read another thing about when I was reading about what about Bob that um I guess he threw a producer in a lake and like <laughs> broke her sunglasses and threw him across the parking lot and threatened to throw her across the parking lot. Well, yeah. So he had well, him and Harold Ramis had a falling out that lasted until Ramis's deathbed. Oh, because of Groundhog Day. Really? Yeah. Um, yeah. They, they didn't. They didn't talk until Ramis was dying. Yeah, why? Why did you? See um, why that they happened? they had I did, the details. I I couldn't find out about, but apparently it was enough to, and it was about the movie. Apparently, hmm. but I um, I thought that prior to Ramus getting sick, that 
Murray in interviews had said that they had started talking about doing the Ghostbusters sequel again. Hmm. I think Dan Aykroyd was playing the go. But I think Who? Dan, Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> what did I say? Like Aykroyd. Aykroyd. Yeah, Dan Aykroyd had been going playing the go between, if I remember correctly, from like old like Anna Cool News articles from right. that time period. That Oof. Aykroyd was playing the go between between Ramus yeah, and Murray. I, I seem to recall something to that. I mean, you could. Well. I I, I, I think you can see volatility in Murray. I mean, he's not yeah. like. He seems like like is he is he like tall in real life? Is he like yeah. a, a big guy? Because he always, it's weird because like depending on how they film him, he doesn't always seem like he's. Sure. But like, and what about Bob? He seems like a pretty towering dude. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was because Richard Dreyfuss is he's probably like, like five two, yeah. but yeah, I, I mean, I can see that. Yeah. So, uh, but so overall, my my question is is. This comes this early 90s time period. So, like, late 80s, early 90s is one specific time period. I think yeah. you start seeing movies of his. You have the early 80s, early to mid 80s. You have, and then you have, like, the late 90s, early 2000s. It's, like, pretty, like, three distinct time periods, even if that last one is uh, covers a lot of territory. So, is this his best time period? Or would you say that overall, not just for these certain movies, overall, which do you think is his best time period? I mean, I think... I think Groundhog Day was pretty much the the peak of him yeah. doing okay. exactly what so that late eighties what he 90s. can do you know the full full range of emotion yeah. um, you know all all manner of comedy in that from you know stepping in a puddle and falling down to you know yeah, there's, make, he's making a joke with with just his eyes you know he really does have he's one of the few comics that can bridge that gap between like purely physical comedy and like subtle. I don't know, almost like emotional or like psychological comedy or whatever. Okay. Um, then either of you have any final thoughts on Bill Murray whatsoever? No, I think, I mean, I think he's still doing um, funny stuff. And I, you know, I all the Wes Anderson stuff, I think has been great for him. Um, I've really enjoyed him in everything, even as, you know, a voice in... Um, I'll, Garfield the movie. I love dogs. <laughs> or a tale uh, of two kitties. Was that's that? Garfield too. Oh no! Is that real? Mm-hmm. Was, was was Bill Murray the voice? Yeah. What did they just back up a dump truck full of cash? Yeah, Bill Murray plays Garfield. <laughs> I wasn't joking. That's I know. I know that's. Truth. I know that's true. But I, like, how do you get into a sequel after? I, yeah. I don't know. I guess. I, I, I think we're on the same page because I would have just assumed it was some kind of deal he couldn't get out of when he did Garfield. <laughs> right. So he would never do a sequel with the idea that he did a sequel is <laughs> more disturbed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how, you know, wow. <laughs> I mean, I guess maybe it's like two days' work and he gets like $7 million sure. or something. Or maybe I mean, really, it's just him talking in his voice. He doesn't have to do anything. Yeah, exactly. I hate Mondays. I like lasagna. <laughs> <laughs> like, where's my millions? Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I like him. I like him in in just about everything. So, um, you know, it's great that he's still doing comedy. Yeah. It's great that he still seems to be doing what he likes to do, what he what he's good at. And it's really nice that he found somebody like Wes Anderson that really appreciates him and uses him well. I think. And I, I honestly, I just really hope that. Um... Is he in every Wes Anderson movie? Is that uh... right? Not bottle rock, right? right? Not bottle rock. Well, right, but I mean, like, but after like the from Rushmore on, because he's in Darjeeling Limited, he's yeah. in Moonrise Kingdom, 
Yeah. In, is he in Grand Budapest? Yeah. He's in Grand yeah. Budapest. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, Grand Series. Yeah. yeah. And both the animated ones, Mr. Yeah. Fox right. and yep. Isle of Dogs. Um, I, just, I just hope they don't mess up Ghostbusters 3 too bad. Like, when they do that. Is that happening? Oh, it's out. Oh, no, it's definitely. It's 2020. That's disgusting. Right now? Is there a sign? What are you going to do with Harold character? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't know who's writing that. I don't even I thought know it was directing uh, it. Landis. It was... Um, is it Landis's kid? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Maybe, okay. Ma- Max? Yeah. So, yeah, Max Landis. Okay. Yeah, maybe them. I, I don't know. Like, maybe the writing will be there. I, I have no idea. I just hope that it doesn't completely fall on its face um, too much. Right. Hopefully it's better than that other one. Right. So, okay. So, Jason, thank you for being on. Yeah, with thanks again. for... It was, thank it was a good time. Yeah. Um, so, everyone, we next week we'll, we'll be back with the top five crime movies in the 1970s. We'll be next Friday's episode. We'll be taking a week off, and then we'll be coming back at the end of the month with the top five B horror movies in 1982. And then when we start April, our first episode is going to be top five Shakespeare adaptations. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, That's what you agreed to about two months ago. Yeah. Well, I was probably drunk. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like it. Though. That's start, good. Yeah, yeah I already, I already got some in my We're head. Celebrating Shakespeare's birthday, like of April for. <clears throat> So, um, so remember everybody, if you like what you hear, please like, subscribe, leave feedback. If you have any list suggestions, you can email us at two guys, five movies at gmail.com. That's number two and five, two guys, five movies at gmail.com. You can also follow us on our Facebook page at two guys, five movies. Thank everybody for listening and have a great week. Yep. Have a good weekend.